Let me ask you real quick, uh, before we, we dig into the text this morning, just a quick show of hands. How many of you grew up in a small town? We're participating this morning. Yes, it's already going to be a great morning, right? So I did not grow up in a small town at all. I grew up in, in Sugarland, south side of Houston, so this is all I've ever really known. But shortly after Sheridan and I got married, we moved to a small town just outside of Austin, and we very quickly learned that there is a pace of life in a small town that is very different than the suburbs of Houston. And not only is that pace of life very different, but in the fall, what is it also? It's football season. That's right. So when it's game time on Friday night in a small town in the state of Texas, there is literally nothing else going on. There's nothing of consequence or value that could possibly take place that is more important than the game of football. And so we moved to this town, and we kind of knew that that was a joke. Like, that's kind of the stereotype when you start talking about small town Texas. Until we got there and we went, no, everything about that is completely true. So, like, from, from the middle point of August until the beginning of December, every tree in the city had yellow and blue ribbons on it. There were signs in every yard. Every restaurant you were in had promotional cups for the football team. I mean, they had, like, four-year-old cheerleader apprentices in training. You started hearing about that in June because you've got to make sure that every girl under the age of 16 knows how to cheer for the football team. You've got football schedules on every checkout counter. I mean, every Everything shuts down at like 7 o'clock on Friday night anyway so that everyone can go to the, the, uh, the football game. So no matter, no matter what happened, I mean, there was this thing, high school football, and in the fall especially, it just took over and influenced everything that happened in the city. There was nowhere that you could look and not see the evidence of this thing that everybody was rallying around. And so as we come into Acts chapter 19 today, that image kept coming up in my mind. Because as I was reading this passage and I was thinking about where we're going to go, I, I felt like this was an important dynamic for us to keep in mind. Because by the time we get to the end of this passage in verse 20, it's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read it for you or you can read along there. It's going to say, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So in the city of Ephesus, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And that word there in the Greek that says prevail mightily is the same word that you would use when you said someone was dominating. In this passage, we're going to see that there's a, a man with an evil spirit, and there's these exorcists that go and try to, to cast this demon out of him. And this man with the evil spirit leaps upon these guys and overpowers them. And that word, overpower, is the same word that's used here when it says prevail mightily. So there's something, church, that happens here in Acts chapter 19 in the city of Ephesus that by the time it's finished, the word of God has taken over. That no matter where you look, just like was the case with Vikings football, you saw evidence of what God was doing. And so this morning, what I want us to do is, is begin to see and understand what it looks like for us to be the kind of church that has that kind of an impact on our city. I want us to see what it looks like for us to be the kind of church that no matter where you look, you can see what the Lord is doing because of the faithfulness of the families that call C3 home. And look, I, I realize that's a really tangible, far-off thing. 
Because I think if you, if you look right now, you'd say, you know, Chris, I'm not really sure that my neighbors know that we exist. I'm not really sure that anyone in the woodlands really knows that we exist unless they drive by here on a Sunday morning. What does it look like for us to go from being a church who, who comes here on Sunday morning to being a church whose impact is known all out in our communities? And, and my hope is that, that that tension, that feeling of like, man, I don't know how we're going to get there, doesn't cause us to go, well, it can't be done. Because the people here in, in the city of Ephesus had no idea that this was coming. They had, they had nothing going on in their city that would indicate that in a short amount of time, they would go from being a people who didn't know God to being a people who were making God known everywhere. And so what I want us to see this morning is that the thing that really made the difference for them and that I want to submit to you is going to really make the difference for us is that when Paul got to Ephesus and when the people in Ephesus began to trust in and believe in Jesus, what made a difference for them was that they consistently and faithfully invested their lives into others. Because if you invest your life in others, you begin to exert influence. And influence, if given enough time, produces change. So the overarching thing that we're going to see for us today is that as we invest our lives in others, it leads to influence and change. I realize that this is very much of a, a piggyback on what Hudson shared with us last week, and, and I think that's because these passages have a lot of overlap, but that's where we're going to go today. We're going to see how investing in others leads to influence, and influence leads to change. And hear me, I think that's something we want. I don't know about you guys, but there, there have been seasons and weeks and months of my life where I've gone into church and I've been like, I'm just bored. Is this really all there is to this? Am I just going to show up and serve and listen to someone teach and sing songs that I've sung 15 million times and go home? Is that all there is to the Christian life? And I think in those moments where, where we feel that way, one of the reasons that we can, can feel that way is because we were not designed to do that. We were designed for something more. We were designed not to get into this religious, monotonous cycle, but we were called to be proactive in taking the things that we know and treasure and love about Jesus and investing them into other people. And when that happens, you see incredible change, like we'll see here in Ephesus, but you also see incredible change in our communities and our families and our lives and our own approach to our faith. So let's jump in and start reading this morning in verse 1. This is Acts chapter 19, verse 1. It says, And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into then what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. 
So the first thing I want us to see this morning is we're beginning to kind of unpack this idea of, of being a people who, who invest their lives in other people and producing this change, this taking over, this incredible influence of the church is that sometimes investing your life in others looks like finishing work that another started. What does that mean? Well, we'll get there in just a second, but the first thing I want us to, to, to see and, and unpack this morning is that um, unlike every other missionary journey that Paul's taken, so if, if, if you've been with us in Acts, you know about this. If you're new to the book of Acts, you've never studied it before, Paul is going around and he's uh, planting churches and, and telling people the gospel all over the Roman Empire. He's done this twice. He's gone out on two incredible journeys, and now he's at the beginning of the third one of these journeys. But unlike the other missionary journeys Paul's taken, this one is interesting. There's no fireworks. There's no grand entrance. Paul's third trip out of Antioch to plant churches and make disciples is really not marked by fanfare. Verse 1 shows that he just kind of showed up. I mean, it literally says it, it just happened while Apollos was in Corinth. Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. But I don't want us to think that the reason for this lackluster entrance is because there really isn't anything great going on. There is. There is something great going on. It's just that the work by this point is so much bigger than Paul. You see, Paul had, as, as Hudson showed us last week, he had invested his life in Priscilla and Aquila. And Priscilla and Aquila were, were two disciples that Paul had invested his life uh, into. And they... Priscilla and Aquila invested their lives into Apollos, and Apollos decides, hey, this is great. I'm going to go and invest my life into the people in Corinth. And that kind of dynamic where you've got disciples making disciples making disciples is happening all over the empire at this point, such that when, when Paul shows up in Ephesus, what does he find? It says, there he found disciples, not Jews, not pagans, not God-fearers like we're used to seeing, but disciples. He's beginning to show up in places, and the effects of people having invested their lives into proclaiming Jesus to others is beginning to take effect. And that's because discipleship is a process where when you leave, when you take your hands off, growth and maturity and evangelism and love for Jesus flourish. It's where people come in and they say, I'm going to take what I know about Jesus I'm going to take my love for him. I'm going to take the way that he has impacted my life, my marriage, my parenting, my work, the affections of my soul, and I'm going to let that so overflow out of me into you that you will be forced to do one of two things. Either say, that's not for me, or say, I want that. There's something unique and keen about the way that you live that screams difference. You're not like everyone else I know. And when people, instead of rejecting it and saying, that's not for me, say, I'm curious, tell me more. And out of you overflows this love for Jesus. People see it and they latch onto it and they believe it. And then they become so convicted by it that when you step out of the equation, they continue on faithfully. And that's what's happening here. These people, as Paul walks into Ephesus, are people who'd experienced that dynamic from John the Baptist's ministry. We don't know if they had walked with John the Baptist or if they had been discipled by people who'd been discipled by John the Baptist, but here they are 
hundreds of miles away from where all of John's ministry started in Israel, and they are faithfully keeping the commandments of God. They've believed in Jesus as well, but they haven't heard about the fact that the Holy Spirit had come. There was a work that had been started that hadn't been finished. And just like Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos that we saw last week aside and explained to him more fully the way of the Lord, here Paul comes in and he explains more fully to these disciples the entire news of the gospel, which isn't just that Jesus came and died for our sins and rose again, but that he also sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of us and to lead us and to guide us and to never leave us. And so as soon as he does that, they hear and the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. So why does that matter? Why does that matter as we get ready to see Paul enter into the city of Ephesus? Well, it matters for the same reason that Apollos is in Corinth. Because when Apollos got to Ephesus himself, he knew this much. And by the time that Priscilla and Aquila were done with him, he knew this much. And you see these disciples of John that, that Paul comes in contact with, they know this much. And by the time that he's done explaining to them the truth of, of the, the gospel, they know this much. And that process of investing in Apollos and the process of investing in these disciples here matures them. It matures their understanding. It equips them to know more about why they're doing what they're doing. And so just like Apollos said, okay, I got it. This all makes sense to me now. This clicks. I get why Jesus is worth pouring out my life for. And so because of that, where can I go? What can I do? Who can I go and share this information with? I know what I'll do. I'll go to Corinth. I'll go to Corinth and I'll tell the people there about Jesus and I'll see them grow and I'll see them mature. The same thing happens here. You see, Paul steps foot in Ephesus and he meets these disciples and they experience the power of the Holy Spirit in an undeniable, life-changing way. And all of a sudden, everything for them ties together. They become people who now get it. They become people who understand. And they become people who are ready to participate in the work that the Lord is doing. Which matters because if we're going to have a church in Ephesus that by verse 20 is doing such incredible work that the Lord is visible everywhere that you look. You have to have people who have been able to say, I've experienced Jesus in a real, tangible, and powerful way, and I get it. I get it. I understand why this matters. And I think for most of us in the room, if you've been following Jesus for a time, either right now or at some point in time in your life, you can look back and you say, there was a time where I got it. There was a time where it clicked. There was a time where it made sense to me. There was a time where I was so enamored with Jesus that it impacted the way that I lived, where when I was in sin, I felt convicted by it, and I wanted to figure out what it looked like to confess that sin and walk in repentance and, and ask the Lord what it looked like to be faithful. There was a time in my life where I was so overwhelmed by and aware of what it looked like to be a recipient of God's grace that I went to other people, even though it was super awkward. And I tried to tell them, here's what Jesus has done for me. This is how it's impacted my life. And you've seen the fruit that's come from that. 
That, that, that you've had an experience of Jesus where you go, I've seen him work in incredible ways. I've seen him answer prayers that make no sense. I've seen him lead me to do things that at, at, at surface level make no sense to me whatsoever. And then I saw him use that to accomplish something far greater. And if there's a part of you that, that has experienced that at some point in time, you're exactly the person that God needs in this church for us to go and make a difference somewhere else to make an impact in our community because God uses people who've experienced him to go out and produce radical change in our communities. And if you're looking at that and you're like, hey, that sounds really good, but that has not been my experience of religion. That's not been my experience of Christianity. That hasn't been my experience of Jesus. It's been shame. It's been feeling like I'm not doing enough. I'm not working hard enough. I've never really seen God move in my life. My question to you this morning is, have you just been around people who know God but never actually known him yourself? Or have you been so burdened by or stuck in a religious system that preaches religiosity and moralism that you fail to realize that Jesus is calling you out of that to something more? And if either of those is true for you this morning, my prayer is that God would open your heart this morning to see and understand that Jesus doesn't just want you to be religious or moral or behave right or show up on a Sunday morning and sit in a seat and give money and feel good about yourself. He wants you to realize that outside of him, you have zero hope in this world or for the life beyond. But he doesn't condemn you for that. He doesn't condemn you for that. He doesn't judge you for that. He doesn't hate you for that. He invites you to feel that hopelessness, to feel that, that lack of direction, that lack of clarity in your life, and go to him instead and find forgiveness and grace and hope and purpose because he freely gives you all things through Jesus who loves you and died for you. And when a people like that, a people like these disciples that, that Paul meets here at the beginning of Acts chapter 19, see that and understand that and believe that and experience Jesus, there are incredible things that can happen. And so let's look back at chapter 19 and, and, and pick up starting here in verse 8 because Paul has met these people in Ephesus. They've experienced Jesus. He started to form this core group of people and now he's going to go and he's going to continue doing this work of investing in other people in the aim and the hope of seeing them come to know Jesus. So let's read starting in Acts chapter 19 verse 8. It says, and he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So the second thing I want us to see this morning is that sometimes... Investment looks like starting a new work. So we're talking about how investment leads to influence, leads to change. Paul found these disciples who'd been invested in by John the Baptist, and he influenced them, and it led to change because he was finishing a work that had already been started. But sometimes it looks like going in and starting a new work, and that's what happens here. Paul's come, Paul comes into Ephesus, he enters the synagogue, and he begins teaching. But if you've been with us in the book of Acts, you've seen that when Paul goes into a synagogue, it's usually like one or two weeks, and then he gets booted out. The people who were there don't like what he has to say, they disagree with his teaching, and they kick him out. But instead, what you see here is actually really interesting. He goes for three months, and week after week, it says he spoke boldly, and he reasoned, and he persuaded them about the kingdom of God. And many of them heard and believed. 
But the nature of influence is that it goes both ways, right? So he goes in and he talks and you see some come to believe and you see that some harden their hearts and reject what he has to say. Paul's continual investment of his life and his ministry leads to salvation for some and it leads to stubbornness for others. And so by the time that Paul has gone in for three months persuading and asking and begging people to understand the consequence and the weight of the fact that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, you see that he has some disciples who he takes with us or with him into uh, this hall of Tyrannus, and you see that there are some who reject what he has to say. But what you see here is really fascinating. Paul, in all of these cities that we've seen him go to, just kind of hops in and out. He's there for maybe a month, a couple weeks. But here it says that he went out into the hall of Tyrannus, and for two years, two years, y'all, the disciples with him, he goes and he reasons and he persuades and he convinces people and he pours his life out so that others would see and understand the worth and the value of Jesus. And he's got disciples who are with him, who are watching what it looks like to be a Christ follower, learning what it looks like to share Jesus with others, growing and maturing because of the influence of Paul. Now that's what you read here. But what I want to do is I also want to discuss what you don't read here. What you don't read here in these verses is what's happening because of the fact that Paul is standing up every day before anyone who would listen and helping them understand who Jesus is. See, during this time in Ephesus, we'll see this in a couple of weeks when we get to Acts chapter 20, Paul finds men who love Jesus enough that they're willing to be called elders, who are willing to say, hey, I will stand up before a group of people and I will put myself forward as a person for them to follow. I will love this people. I will train this people. I will teach this people. I will take such responsibility for this people that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to love and serve and grow these people into disciples. We'll see that over in Acts chapter 20. What you also will see in Acts 20 when we get there is that many of these elders came from Paul going house to house, day by day, preaching in public, going out and sharing with people about Jesus. He is pouring his life out and creating people who are so influenced by the message of Jesus that they say, hey, I'm on board with that. What else can I do? Who else needs to know about this? And there are enough people who say, I'm on board with this, what else can I do? That, that there are churches that get planted during this time in Ephesus. In fact, um, most scholars believe that while Paul is here in Ephesus, during these, these verses that we see here in verses 8 through 10, that's when the church in Colossae is planted, which is where the, the, the letter to the Colossians is, is, uh, is, is written to. When you go and read in Revelation 2, these churches that get letters from Jesus, six out of the seven churches, because one of them is Ephesus, are all churches in the immediate area surrounding where Ephesus is. Most scholars believe that those churches were planted during this time where Paul is going around day by day for these two years and pouring himself into other people. So there's this incredible wave of church planting and discipleship and investment that not only Paul, but those who are with him um, accomplish in this area as they daily preach and encourage and invite people to know Jesus. So what does all this mean? So what does all this mean? What, is, what does this mean for, for us? It means that by the time that we see Paul here at the end of these, these two years, at the end of verse 10, you've got this incredible church in Ephesus that is proclaiming the gospel such that, as verse 10 says, all the residents of Asia... 
all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. See, there's such an influence, not only in Ephesus, but the, the area around them that it is producing widespread change for the sake of the gospel. So much so that, that we get the story that we're going to see here in verse 11, where, where the, the gospel has so penetrated this area, the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done for us has so penetrated this area that there are people who are saying, I want to get in on that. I want to, I want to have the same influence. I want to have the same power. I want, to, I want to be a part of the work that's doing. And so I'm going to copycat what's going on here and get in on the action. So let's see what that, that is starting here in verse 11. So it says, and, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were being carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. It would have been really interesting to be one of the persons sitting outside of the house before that happened. Like, what on earth is going on in there? Broken dishes, naked people running out. Like, oh my goodness, are you, are you kidding me? So what I want you to see here is this, and, and just a little bit of a pretext for this. Um, if you lived in the city of Ephesus in the first century, you would have understood that, that Ephesus was a city where there were a lot of people who were doing magic and sorcery and witchcraft. Those were big businesses in the city. And so it's interesting that the Lord chose to drive out these, these demons and heal sicknesses by these extraordinary miracles that Paul is doing. Because the reason that these magicians and sorcerers were able to make all this money is that people would come to them and say, help me. I'm not getting better. And they would do some kind of incantation or ritual or, or do some kind of a, a, a spell in hopes that the person would get better. And they never did because there was no power in what these men, these, these false prophets, these magicians would actually do. And so people would just get in this trap of being in a very spiritually dark place where they go, man, I'm stuck and I don't know what it looks like to get unstuck. And I'm looking for anybody who can help me out. And so these, 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 uh, these witchcraft uh, people and these sorcerers would, would do these things over and over and over again and get more and more and more money out of these people searching for cures. And all of a sudden, Paul shows up and the Spirit of God starts doing incredible things and people are actually getting better. And do you think that got the attention of people in the city? Of course it did. Of course it did. It especially got the attention of these seven sons of a Jewish priest named Sceva because they look at Paul and they're going, hey man, this guy's running us out of business. He's got the hot hand. We better ride whatever this guy is doing because if we don't, man, we're stuck. It's kind of like how you get copycats or people that try to re-engineer or redesign things whenever someone comes out with a really amazing product that's generating buzz. Like here's an example for you. Um, do you guys remember in the early 2000s when the Motorola Razor came out? Oh, yeah. So, 
This, is, uh, this was like the s first super cool slim cell phone that you could buy. It was the first cell phone that didn't have this dorky antenna that you had to pull out or that was you know, stuck like a big piece of plastic on top of the phone. And uh, it was really crazy. And for all you millennials and students in here, this is back when phones didn't have Wi-Fi. And like, it was cool that caller ID and a camera on your phone were new features that you didn't have on every single phone. And, and you know, the Motorola Razr had it. And so you're like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. What an incredible phone. And you know what happened afterward, right? What did every single cell phone after this start doing? It immediately tried to copycat this. Right? Every single cell phone tried to get slimmer, cooler, sleeker, color, ca cameras, caller ID. And so it, it just, it, it was this all the rage. And so you see this all the time. You see it with technology, you see it with clothes, you, you see it with cars, you see it with shoes. When you see something that, that comes out that creates incredible influence, people try to copycat it. And that's what's going on here. Except in this case, you've got these Jewish exorcists in Acts 19 who are trying to copy what Paul's doing, except this isn't a game. This isn't a cell phone. This isn't marketing. This is a very real spiritual realm and dimension with real power and real consequence. They want the power and the notoriety and the influence that comes with the name of Jesus and with Paul, but without the person of Jesus or the relationship that comes with it. And so the evil spirit in this man looks at them and goes, hey, I know who Jesus is, and I see that Paul is creating incredible influence in the city, but I don't know who you jokers are. You better man up. I'm about to jump you. And so they run out of this house naked and wounded and embarrassed. So what's the point of that story? I think there's some quick lessons to glean from it. Things like, hey, whether we believe it or not, there is a spiritual realm that coexists with us even to today. There's a spiritual realm that coexists with us even to today. And there are things that go on in that realm that influence us. And there are things that we do here that influence that. And Paul is evidence of that. He's known by the demons. They understand who he is because of the influence he has. Um, but this realm exists. And, and Paul um, will later write to the, the Ephesians uh, in Ephesians 6.12. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the lesson for us here, one of the lessons for us here is that there is a battle. There's a battle for your marriage, a battle for your faith, a battle for your kids, for your contentment, for your purity. And it's a spiritual battlefield and you're not walking onto a neutral battlefield. We can glean lessons from, from this example here with these Jewish exorcists. Like, it's possible to try to sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on what you're doing in the hopes of doing it right, when in reality, your heart is far from God and you're not walking with him. And it will never produce the results that you think it will. And if that's your approach to life right now, like, man, my heart is far from God, but I'm just going to sprinkle a little Jesus on everything I say and on my schedule throughout the course of the week in hopes that it's going to get me where I need to go. Let me just be honest with you. That's not going to work. It's not. And I'm not condemning you for that. Jesus doesn't condemn you for that either. He invites you to more. He says, hey, stop trying to use me as an accessory to make your life better. I'm the only life worth having. So those are lessons we glean from it. But the point of the story is what we see in verses 17 through 20, which is where we're going to begin wrapping things up today. So let's look at verses 17 through 20. It says this, it says, and this, this thing that happened with these Jewish exorcists became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. 
Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What I want us to see this morning is that the final step of discipleship, of investing in others, of, of pouring yourself out for others, is that it creates influence that produces change, maturation, growth. These, these, these followers of Jesus in, in Ephesus come with these books of supernatural magic and incantations and, and things that were valued at, at 50,000 pieces of silver, which doesn't mean anything to us, but back in their day, that's 150 years of working nonstop without taking a day off. So they were, they were taking these things and, and bringing them before, uh, before Paul because a light bulb had gone off and they realized there's something incompatible with my holding on to these things and my saying that I love and follow Jesus. You see, for, for these people, for us, it makes a lot of sense. Like, I mean, if you became a Christian today, you'd probably be like, mm, it's probably not a good idea that I uh, continue to practice magic. That seems like a no-brainer to me, you know? Like, there are things that today, if we... we really understood the gospel and really understood what it meant to be a believer in Jesus, we would go, okay, that, that's super immediately obvious to me that I can't keep doing that. Right? Like, let's just take it to the logical extreme. I've got to stop murdering people now that I know Jesus because that's incompatible with what I understand. So, like, that's a logical extreme, but for these people, you know, while we might look at these books of supernatural magic or these spells and go, well, that seems to make sense to me. Like, why would you continue doing that? You have to understand that for these people, this was a fail-safe. This was a backup. This was likely their former way of living, so it was a security bank blanket. It was a means of income. It was a way to make sure that if Christianity didn't pan out and Jesus wasn't who they really believed he was and he didn't satisfy their soul the way that they thought he would, that they eventually had something that they could go and pick back up and have a connection to this former way of life so that they didn't end up homeless and starving. But maturity and change looks like getting to the point where you realize that Jesus isn't just an addition to the life that you've got. He's the only life worth having. And so for these people, instead of having a mindset that, that at one point they had where they said, what do I have to give up if I follow Jesus? I don't want to give this up. Instead, they come and they say, what is holding me back from living the life that Jesus is calling me to? And they look at these, these things, these, these supernatural and, and witchcraft and sorcery type things, and they say, this is holding me back from living the life that Jesus is calling me to. And so they took the remaining anchors that they had to their former way of living and gave them up publicly in front of all. Now, I'm not saying this morning that if you have some aspect of your life that's keeping you back from following Jesus, that you need to bring it here on a Sunday morning and burn it on the little green mark in the middle of the floor here. That would probably make the school pretty angry and we'd need to figure out a new place to go um, pretty quickly. Uh, it might get people talking, so, you know, you might roll the dice on that. But the point in that is not to say that we need to bring stuff in here on Sunday morning and light it on fire in front of everybody. The point is, is there a, is there a habit or a relationship that you're holding on to from a season of life where you weren't walking with Jesus that you're, you're saying, man, this feels good or it provides me security or somehow it lets me keep a foot out the door just in case this Jesus thing doesn't pan out the way that I think it's going to. If Jesus can't really satisfy the desires of my heart, if going all in on walking with him um, isn't really the means by which I can find peace and joy, if I still need purpose and affirmation and reason for, for living or from my job or from other people, then at least I can cling to this one thing 
that will give me that feeling of security or satisfaction or meet that need for me because I don't really trust that I can get that in Jesus. And if that's true this morning for you, I pray that you would understand and see that just as we've seen with the people here in Ephesus, that one of the steps of discipleship is throwing off the things that you love that are outside of Jesus and that lead you away from him. It's not until the people really here in in Acts chapter 19, it's not until the people in Ephesus do this that they really experience the maturity and growth that causes them to be able to have said of them, Ephesus is a place where the word of God prevails. And once that happened, no matter where you looked, you saw the influence of Jesus everywhere. So what is there in that for us? Three quick things and then I'm done. I think the first thing that there is for us is that there's a place of growth and multiplication and change that God is calling us to. There is. There's a place of growth that God is calling us to. This happened um, in Ephesus. This this step that they took was radical. In fact, we're going to see next week that this act of burning these books and this public display of of all of it is going to create this huge disturbance. I believe, church, that God wants to disrupt our neighborhoods. I do. I believe he wants to disrupt our schools, our relationships, our workplaces, and he wants to see men and women and boys and girls turn to him. I don't think that's a pipe dream for us as a church. I think it's something that God wants to do and that he can do and that he wants to lead us toward. He wants for us to be a church where the word of God prevails everywhere we go because of the faithfulness of the people here. I think the second thing for us is this. This happens by being a people who have an influence for Jesus. There's no other way about it. It's not going to happen by osmosis. It's not going to happen by wishing hard. It's not going to happen by waiting for someone else to do the work. This change happens through the faithful and consistent proclamation of Jesus to those around us. It happens by doing things like Paul did that are hard and uncomfortable, but faithful. And it starts, number three, with a commitment to invest in others. That starts by investing in ourselves, investing the time and the prayer into pursuing the Lord ourselves, and then it expands to our families, and then it expands to other people here. And hear me, I'm not asking you to be Paul. I'm not asking you to be me. I'm not asking you to teach a theology class next year. I'm asking you to be a person who says, this is what I've experienced about Jesus. Who else do I know that needs to hear about this? It could be that you're one of the families here who's been graced with the opportunity to grow your kids up to a point where they've left the house. And there are a ton of families here who are sitting at home most days and assuming that they are failing as parents and terrified that they are not going to be able to raise their kids up in such a way that they will ever be able to go on and be functional adults or love Jesus. And you have an ability to look at them and encourage them and go, hey, I know what that feels like, but don't lose hope. Here's how I saw Jesus work through my mistakes, because there are plenty of them, and through my successes to create lasting change in my kids. There are a lot of people here who've got kids running at home who are trying to figure out what it looks like to juggle the second, third, or fourth one on the way, and there are families here who are getting ready to welcome baby number one home, and they're trying to figure out what it looks like to go from being able to um, go and see a movie at 11 o'clock at night and go to Whataburger afterward and wake up in the morning and not really worry about it because, you know, hey, YOLO, I'm 20, and I can do that kind of thing, and it doesn't affect my sleep for the next week of my life. And you're going, buckle up, buttercup. Life is about to get real interesting. But they need to have someone who comes in and says, look, my experience of Jesus is that this is what it looks like to try to love and serve my my spouse and my kids in light of this dynamic change that just happened. Let me just walk through that with you. For some of you, that may mean that you're walking into a work that someone else has done. 
and you're continuing and helping to finish that work. It may mean that you're going to someone that you know here who doesn't know Jesus and hasn't ever walked with them and you're helping them get started. But what it means for us is that it starts with a commitment to invest in others. If you didn't listen to Hudson's sermon last week, if you weren't here, go back and listen to it because I think it provides a lot of context for this. But my encouragement for us is that we'd see what happens here in Ephesus and we'd go, you know what? I really want to take what I've learned and I want to put it into action because as I invest my life in other people, it results in influence and it leads to change. And I believe, church, if we were to do that, that eventually Magnolia, the Woodlands, Conroe, anywhere you looked, you would see the Lord at work because of the faithfulness of the families that call C3 home. Let's pray.